people praise the name of the Lord our God. His name will sing forever. How long? <laughs> what is that like in eternity? Right? Because if you think of the songs that we have here, there's always a time limit. Songs come to an end. But to sing the name of the Lord forever is something that I cannot wait to behold. Can you? So thankful for the worship team and so thankful for another Christmas reminder of our Lord's entrance into this world to ransom a people for himself out of the marketplace of sin. And the songs we reflect is really just a small portrait of a truth for life to the joy that Christians have and will experience in all its color when we stand before our living God to whom we will sing and praise forevermore. Some of you may not be aware of this uh, fact, but I have a twin brother. Um, you know, I always joke with him. I always say he's the stuff left over. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, nah, he's my twin brother, and I love him to death. Um, five minutes apart, we have no knowledge of our biological father. Well, not until recently, that is. Um, but by and large, our upbringing, by all in appearances, was you know stable insofar as we had a roof over our heads and food to eat and clothes to wear. See if you can figure out which one is me up there. <laughs> um, and it was that man right there, that man right there, who would adopt us into his family. His name was Roland. He passed away of brain cancer. Uh, over five years ago, it was that man who would <clears throat> adopt us into his family. In those days, you know, when, when you're a child, you don't readily consider God's divine hand of providence that lay behind many of the circumstances of your life, let alone the goodness of God in drawing my brother and I to Christ in our early 20s. But the Lord having allowed me and my twin brother to live into our 40s. Now we can look back and we can see God's imprint in our lives in allowing for bad circumstances of our birth to turn out for our good and for his glory. Look, I, I recognize that a number of, of kids, children, at a young age, you don't readily consider God working things out through the day and day and, and the by and by in the life through various circumstances. Whatever your background is, you have a various circumstances in which the Lord um, orchestrated certain events that brought about uh, who you are to some degree or another, and you're here today, and the Lord weaved that tapestry of providence for a particular purpose and a reason for His glory. You might come from um, a particular background which was reasonably stable and some not so stable, or somewhere in between. But whatever circumstances that you find your, yourself in, we can have a Father in heaven who would never leave you nor forsake you, yes? There's a prophet in the scripture called Isaiah, and he lived in, a, in the kind of circumstances in which I don't believe any of us in this room would ever want to live in. 
Jerusalem faced threats from two opposing forces. You have the Assyrian Empire. If you know anything about the Assyrian Empire, they were a mighty people, also wicked, exceptionally wicked people. And then you had, number two, you had the Babylonian Empire, also very powerful, much more powerful than the Assyrian Empire, both of which God would send to Israel, that if they failed to repent of their idolatry, if they failed to repent of their idolatrous practices that was going on, that he would send these two nations against them if they failed to repent. And so what you see in the book of Isaiah, in chapters 1 through 39, you, you see the, 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 the threat and severe judgment by the hand of God himself to Jerusalem, to his own people. And then you get to chapters 40 through 66 of the book of Isaiah, and that deals largely with hope, with hope. Because the Lord knew that sending two nations against his people because of their idolatrous practices, because of the wickedness that was going on within Israel, it would take two nations to humble Israel. Two giant, mighty, pagan nations to humble them. And so he gives them hope, a lot of hope, 40 Chapters 40 through 66, a lot of hope, the hope of Israel has in God's covenant promises to them, which ultimately be delivered through a man who is to come, which is the Messiah of promise. Jesus Christ is indicated by Isaiah in chapters 9, verse 6. We're going to be looking at that, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We're going to get to that in a moment, but I just want to sort of just set the, the groundwork for what we're going to be looking at here. But seated in the hearts of God's people lay a kind of idolatry which came to light in their behavior and displayed carved idols of wood and stone. Whatever was in their hearts was displayed in the outward effect in their idolatry made of wood and stone. You had God's people were about to lose their homestead. They're about to lose their homestead, Jerusalem, because they placed their emphasis and they placed their hope in the pagan alliances to which they made and treated the covenant of their God as an uncommon thing. God had already told them not to make any kind of foreign alliances with pagan nations. Don't do that, Jerusalem. Don't do that. Don't make alliances with pagan nations. The only alliance that you have is with your covenant God. You see? It would be like me, or it would be like you, to profess Jesus is Lord and worship somewhere that is antithetical to the teachings of Jesus Christ, say Islam or Jehovah's Witness or whatever pagan religion that's out there. It would be like you saying, Jesus is Lord, yeah, I'm going to go over to the Mormon temple. You don't want to do that. Israel was doing that. God told them, don't make alliances with other pagan nations, because if you do that, your hearts will run astray, and you will marry into the idolatry of the nations to which you will align yourselves to, and if you do that, God will not stand for that. He will not stand for your idolatry, let alone the idolatry that lay in your heart, which will ultimately be manifested, to which he will have to deal with. God promises. He will deal with the idolatry of his people's hearts. He will expose it. 
Well, but Israel wouldn't listen, right? Sometimes we don't listen. Sometimes it takes hard truths from loving people to expose the idolatry of our hearts, to love us enough to confront us, saying, hey, you're not going in the right direction, right? That's what Israel was doing. They wouldn't listen. And they would later succumb to God's chastening hand, and Israel would lay on the cinders of their own sin. They were ripped away from their homestead. They were taken away into exile by the hand of the Babylonians. They were living under a new government. They were living under a new leadership. They were living under a new kingship. They were living under a new religion. How would you like that, right? They were, by all accounts, getting precisely what they wanted. They were getting precisely what they wanted. And I tell you, when you live for your passions, when you live for your lust, when you live for your idolatry, you will ultimately live by a new orientation. You will live by a new kind of counsel. You will live under a governing orientation that is not Scripture. It's not the Word of God. It's not Christ. It's something that is antithetical. And that's not the kind of governing principle that you want to live for, is it? Right? Because it never goes well, especially for God's people. But God made a promise. He made a promise to Israel. He made a promise to his people. And he would keep his promise in which he would so remind his people of a hope that is yet to come. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called, notice the titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Isn't that the kind of rule that you want to live under? Isn't that the kind of reign you want to submit your passions to? Isn't that the kind of counsel that you want to be counseled by? Don't you want to be counseled from the one who's from above instead of the counsel of your own dictates of your own idolatrous heart? Counsel which ultimately comes by the word of God. Don't you want to rest under this mighty God, under this prince of peace? Because I tell you, when you allow idolatry to reign in your heart, you will have no peace. You will not have any peace whatsoever. It's as one author had said, if if there's some sort of sin that you're particularly struggling with, it's probably because you have a host of idols underneath it all, or behind it all. You're carrying idols. And I want you to know, I want you to know this morning, that you have a hope for a secure house because of the child called the eternal father, of a child called the eternal father. And I just, just want to just unpack that a little bit because it implies four hope-filled actions of one who provides an everlasting secure house for his people. I just want to be able to just, <laughs> it's kind of pretty, you know, it's pretty heavy, you know, or heady there, and I just want to, have the opportunity just to explain the, the theology behind that because I don't want you to misunderstand what, what's going to be said here. I want you to understand that that phrase, 
that was given by or given to Christ, that title, eternal father, is a title that Christ carries. We're getting, we're, put your theological hats on here, okay? It's a title that Christ carries. It's not that Christ is the father. This is not a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is really easily resolved once we understand the thrust of Isaiah's point in, in, in verse 6 of chapter 9 with reference to Christ being called the everlasting Father, meaning that God the Son is the express image of his Father. Why? That's why he carries a title. But why is he the express, the express image of his Father? Why? Because he does exactly what the Father does. Let me just illustrate this because I think it would be really important um, from a passage out of John chapter 5, I think it would be helpful for you to understand what I'm saying here. Christ was so emphatic. If you look at John chapter 5, I'll give you, I'll just read that to you, and so you don't have to turn there necessarily, but let me just read it to you so that you'll see what I'm, what I'm saying here. In John chapter 5, Christ was so emphatic about his equality with God the Father that even the Jews understood that Christ was claiming equality with God in terms of his nature. Equality with God in terms of his being. For instance, in John, when Christ said in John chapter 5, 21, he said, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. In other words, what the Father does, Christ does. Do you see the equality there? What the Father does, the Son does too. The Father raised the dead, the Son raises the dead. The Father gives life, the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. Then our Lord, he follows up with this statement with another powerful demonstration of his deity in verse 22 of chapter 5. He says, for not even the Father judges anyone. But he's given all judgment to the Son, so why? Why does he say this? So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father, end quote. In other words, the reason why God the Father has committed all judgment to the Son is because God expects us to worship the Son in the same manner that we worship the Father, you see? Why? Because Jesus is God. That's, that's the reason why. He carries all the titles. That's the point. I mean, you cannot get any more equality than that. So then in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Christ carries the title, the titles of the Father, as well as being as well as as well, because he's equal with God, the Father in his being. He's equal with God in his nature, though they are distinct in person. You see? Now you say, David, that's, that's kind of that's hard to wrap my, my mind around. I mean, how in the world do I understand the inner workings of the doctrine of the Godhead? How do I understand the inner workings of the Trinity? I mean, now, for the love of all that is good, don't try to get me to unscrew the inscrutable. <laughs> don't, try to, don't try to comprehend the mystery of the Godhead. I mean, it would be like you trying to understand who runs your Christian life, Right? Well, you might say, well, I do. I run my Christian life. Well, do you? Do you run your Christian life? Because the Apostle Paul said, I, I, I have been me. I have been crucified with Christ, yet not I. <laughs> yet not I, right? But why? 
because Christ lives in me. Well, isn't that special? Isn't that a lovely theological paradox, right? They're both true. You know what a paradox is, right? A paradox is, if you, is, is when you have two truths in Scripture that are side by side one another. They're side by side. They're both true. You don't want to take those two truths and put them together because you will have all sorts of theological problems if you put them together. You keep them just like this. I cannot understand the mystery of how that works, but I know it's true, right? Even in science that we have here, even in science, we have paradoxes. Even in our Science, you, you can't expect me to unscrew the inscrutable in terms of God's sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility, can you? I don't, I don't get it. It's a paradox. Let me give you another example of that. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we read that as many as received him, as many as received him, then it says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Paradox. Two truths in Scripture, side by side. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. There are two truths in Scripture. We accept both. Yes? Yes and amen? I mean, that's what Scripture teaches. You have, that's a, that's a classic example of God's divine prerogative in salvation, and then there's human responsibility. You don't put them together. There are two truths side by side. In one verse, yet both are true. Both are true. It's a divine paradox in Scripture. Don't ever attempt to try and put the two together because otherwise you're going to come up with so many problems. Problems which I don't have time to explain right now. For the life of me, I cannot understand the mystery behind how divine inspiration works. Can you? I, I don't understand how it works. I mean, what, did Paul write a verse here and God write a verse there? They're both true. They're both true. Divine inspiration. Divine inspiration. You say both. I say yes and amen. Both truths are in Scripture. And forget about trying to wrap your mind around Jesus being 100% God, 100% man, and an indivisible one. It's because in human terms, how do we understand that? How in the world can you get 200% of something? I don't, know. I don't get it. Yet, yet, Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus is truly God and Jesus is truly man in an indivisible oneness. Is he not? Of course. Of course he is. Scripture teaches. It, it's expressly clear what the Scripture teaches about who Christ is, the God-man. It's true. I'm per- I am perfectly happy to live in the tension of divine Scripture and concede that God can resolve things that I can't. <laughs> I'm perfectly content with that. And so when we plumb the depths of Scripture, I've said this before, it is simple enough that a child can understand, yet it's deep enough to drown the smartest theologian. Now having said that, Christ carries the title Father because he does what the Father does. Which makes us want, at least it makes me want to ask the question. It makes us want to ask the question, what does a father do? What does a father do? Well, a father builds a house for his people. A father builds a house for his people. One of the ways that a father protects his family from the elements is to provide a homestead. A place that's secure, a, a place that's safe. Now take that idea, take that idea 
and consider the Isaiah context of a father-son house dynasty. Take that thinking and bring it along to this point here, to a father-son house dynasty. And then consider Isaiah chapter 7. That's a, that's a lot of verses there. Consider this passage. Let's, let's just go ahead and read it. It says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the, notice that the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, the son of Ramallah, house of David, notice the underlying portions, you and your son on account of the fierce anger against Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramallah. I'll do the best I can to get these Hebrew words out here. Let us go up against Judah, set up the son of Tabeel as king. It's a new dynasty in the midst of it. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Notice that. The Lord will bring on your father's house, but to both the houses of Israel, behold, I, Isaiah, and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount (coughs) Zion, David's house, end quote. So this name, Eternal Father, refers to an eternal dynasty. It's an everlasting dynasty, a dynasty which will never end. If you, if you were to say that you were from such and such a house, I, I am from the house of such and such, the people, particularly in those days, would generally have an understanding or a knowledge of what you meant by that. In our day and age, we don't really have anything really like that, perhaps similarities, but nothing really lasting. And I th- that the best example I think I can think of really would would be perhaps would be our elected presidents serving two terms, something similar to that. We rightly understand that if a person gets into office and and they make a mess of things, we remember that, right? We remember that, and we don't want the other person of that same house of dynasty, right, to serve in that office. And then you ask the question, well, why? <laughs> well, because the likelihood of that particular person repeating the, the, the mistakes or the sins of their predecessor is a really a frightening thing to behold, is it not? It's a frightening thing to behold. When Christ came, he carried the title of everlasting father. From what? The house of David. And when you think of that, ah, ah, there's hope. There's hope hope. Because if we are under his dynasty, if we are under his house, if we are under his rule, if we are under his reign, we know that we are under what? An everlasting dynasty. Because he would treat us as a good father would treat his son. You see? Do you see where this is going? His family. He would treat you as you are a part of his family. He would treat you as though you are a part of his household. Because with Christ, therein lies the hope of a permanent stability for this world. A permanent stability for you and for me. With a king, a father, a lasting house that will, that will survive not one term, not two terms, not a, a human um, or a, I should say, a fallen dynasty, but an everlasting dynasty. 
a perfect dynasty, a living dynasty that is yet to come on this world. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name, as Isaiah would say in Isaiah 63, verse 16. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. Another title. It's as one hymn writer said, to spread throughout the earth, abroad, the honors, plural, the honors of his name. The honors of his name, his dynasty, his rule, his reign. Consider what God promised to David in 1 Samuel. We're going to look at verse 10 here. He said, I will appoint a place for my people. Who's that talking about? God's people. Me and you. Those who are under the banner of this new dynasty. My people Israel. I will will plant them that they may live in their own place. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days, David, are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom, his kingdom, his rule, his reign. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom, what? Forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You see? The point is this, that the great, or the greatest promise by God given to us is in confirmation of him being with his people. He's going to be with us someday. He's going to be with us someday. Why? Because he promised it. It's a part of his covenant. It's so clearly stated for us in Isaiah chapter 14, fulfilled 700 years soon, beginning with a poor Jewish family. 700 years prior after, rather, as soon as Isaiah gave that prophecy, 700 years later, you have a poor Jewish family on the scene. And out came Jesus. And so the title, Eternal Father, refers to Christ, who will build a house for his people. But there's something else. This Davidic king, this Davidic ruler, this Davidic shepherd would unite his people He would unite with the house of his people, meaning that God will establish his house with the coming of the Son of Righteousness. This is is why we celebrate Christmas, right? This is why we love Christmas so much, because of the symbolism, because of the hope that lies behind it, because of the reminder of Christmas. Emmanuel, a child that has given a son is to be born to us. (laughs) A virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name, what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So many songs have been written about this Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. The promise fulfilled, right? The promise fulfilled. The promise fulfilled. There's only one who fits that qualification. There's only one whose dynasty is from everlasting to everlasting. And when he comes, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever 
and ever. How long is that? There's no time limit. There is no time limit whatsoever. His rule, his reign, giving hope to his people forever and ever. And so as you consider Christmas, as you consider the opening up of gifts and and being with family, loved ones, remember what your Father in heaven has granted to you. Remember what your Father in heaven has granted to you. And even if you didn't get anything, remember what your Father has promised you. That upon believing in Christ, you become a part of his dynasty forever. Forever. You become a part of his family. Forever. You become a part of his people into everlasting, into everlasting. How long is that? There's no time limit. Because that dynasty isn't going to end. No sooner than a person repents and turns from their sin upon placing your faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, what happens is he adopts you into his spiritual family, an everlasting dynasty. He adopts you into his everlasting dynasty, his everlasting family. You become a son to him. He becomes a father to you. And you receive all the rights, you receive all the privileges of a son. A home that will never be torn asunder, an inheritance forever, eternal life? Oh, how can it be? (laughs) And other spiritual benefits that a good father would bestow to his family. You know, I never had a chance to know my biological father. I never got a chance to meet him at all. I never had a chance to meet my biological mother either. From what I understand, the circumstances surrounding our birth was quite uh, dark. Um... But I did find another brother and sister, by the way. Did I tell you that? I found, another, I found another brother and sister, 11 years older, half brother and sister. And they gave us a little bit more history into our, uh, our background. I forgot to put the picture up there. Maybe next time <laughs> I'll post it for you all to see. But the thing that's interesting is that our human dynasties come to an end. You know, my father passed away. My adopted father passed away. Christ will never pass away. He'll never pass away. He lives forever. God the Father in heaven adopts me, David, into his spiritual family. It means so much more. There's so much more meaning behind being adopted into his spiritual family. A father who will never leave me nor forsake me. He's there with me. He's there with you forever and ever. You know, C.S. Lewis has such an incredible insight into this wonderful grace that we've received. Um, I think I have it up here. He says, he says, we catch sight of a new key principle, the power of the higher, just insofar as it is truly higher. To come down, the power of the greater, to include the less. (laughs) Everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is almost a test of its greatness. Wow. I tell you what, C.S. Lewis had a way with words. The way that he could enrapture the heart with the human language is just something that comes as a gift from the Lord. 
we catch a sight of a new key principle. Do you catch that? We catch sight of a new principle. The higher came down to the lower. Christ came down, having so identified with humanity that he robed himself in human flesh, died in the place of sinners, unites those, unites those who believe in him, and we will return with him to rule and reign with him in an everlasting dynasty. Man, it just blows my mind. And there will be no end to his reign. A father builds a house with, for his children. A father unites with his house. A father gives life to his children. Christ carries the title as father because he becomes the life-giving source for his people. A father gives life to his offspring. But in order to do that, he had to be crushed. He had to be crushed for you, for me. You know, God the Father saw his offspring. He will see his offspring. He will see his offspring. There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 53. I know it's not up here. 53.10, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a gift, as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. He raised him from the dead. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In the New Testament, John 1 says of this individual, that as many as received him, there's the paradox, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, it is the right of the Son to bequeath the right of divine privilege to anyone he wishes. And it all points back to the incarnation. (laughs) It all points back to Christmas. It all points back to Christmas. Hebrews chapter 2 says, For both he who sanctifies, he who sets apart, and those who are sanctified sets apart, those who are set apart, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's what he calls you, that's what he calls me. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praises, and again I will put my trust in him. I will proclaim to my brethren. Wow. Wow. When Christ sets you apart to become a part of his everlasting dynasty, he did so with the purpose of using you. He did so with the purpose of setting you apart. He did so with the setting, with, with the setting apart to, to use you. To use you to tell others about this everlasting dynasty. To tell others about the gospel of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That they too would become a part of that everlasting kingdom. And that they would just repent. If, you would, if he would so use you to tell those others who are yet to be a part of that eternal dynasty. You can be used to tell them 
that they can be a part of that everlasting reign, to be a part of that everlasting family. And all they would need to do is just bow the knee to their rule, to the rule of their life, because their life will come to an end apart from Christ. But in Christ, they will remain forever in an everlasting dynasty. And he's using you, he set you apart to do that for his glory, for his glory. And again, he says this, he says, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. I mean, how do you feel about that? How do you feel that you have been, that you are a gift? You're a gift to the Son. He opened up your heart, you received his truth, you repented, you turned from your sin, and you've been given to God. Therefore, since the children share it in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. All their lives. Are there some here who want to be free? Not just from your sin, but forgiven from your sin. I know it's a play on words. But is that what you want, really? Is that what you want? Perhaps there's someone here who doesn't know Christ yet. You're not a part of his everlasting dynasty yet. Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be a part of his rule and reign forever? Do you want a better understanding or, or enrichment into what Christmas is? I mean, it all goes back to Isaiah 9-6, right? Forgiven from all your sin. I mean, if it is, can I, or Pastor Rod or Alfonso or Pastor Sam, can we introduce you to this Christ? Or perhaps any of you sons and daughters of light, perhaps you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't yet know Christ. You can perhaps turn to someone here. Because there are plenty who are going to be a part of this everlasting dynasty, right? And he promises to give you eternal life. He promises to help you, and you have plenty of help right here. You have plenty of help right here. So many sons and daughters of light, they can help you. They can point you to this new dynasty, to this Christ. (laughs) It's such a beautiful thing. It's absolutely such a beautiful, beautiful thing to behold. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but it gives help to the descendants of Abraham, meaning that once you turn your life over to Jesus Christ by faith alone, you are Abraham's descendant in the sense that you carry his faith. You carry his faith. That's what it means. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And fourth, he rises to be the king forever for his people, of his people. Isaiah 9-7. You already know this, right? We said this before. There will be no end to the increase of his government. No end. Or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Christ carries many titles. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You know, I want to be a part of that dynasty. Don't you? I want to be a part of his family. Don't you? This is the house that you want to be a part of forever, don't you? I mean, Christmas takes on so much more meaning. And so let me just close with saying this. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Does that kind of bring, there's so much more richness behind the meaning, Merry Christmas. Always think of the cross and what was accomplished for you. Look, see, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, right? That we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone, and I mean everyone, who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And if you fix your eyes on Jesus and you stay in the narrow way and live by his precepts, being faithful, being accountable. That hope is an everlasting hope. And we can fix our hope on his promises. Yes and amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you so much that he carries that wonderful title, that he is a father to us and that we are sons to him. Lord, we know that you're going to take us home to an everlasting kingdom, but there are some here who may not know you, and we want them to be a part of our family, our spiritual family. And I pray that you would so work in their hearts, Lord, that they would repent and turn to Christ for salvation and help us to live and fix our eyes on him forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.